Of all the sounds you'll hear this summer, This might be your new favorite. They're blending up the new chocolate chip iced cap at Tim Hortons. Real chocolate chips blended into an iced cap for a sweet summer treat. It's Tim Hortons frozen take on a cappuccino. And it just might be the best sound of summer. Hurry into Tim Hortons for the new chocolate chip iced cap. Limited time at participating restaurants. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Welcome to Lucha of the Hidden Temple. My name is Dr. Nove, and this is your VoicesOfWrestling.com Lucha Underground review for the weeks of April 15th and April 22nd, 2015. And since last I spoke and you listened, I had a gig, and it went well. So well, in fact, that I have another gig this coming Friday, and both of them paid, and they paid all right. So I'm tickled pink about that, and now I don't have bar bills on Friday night. I have a bar tab, so I like that too. Let's get right into this April 15th episode, because I like this as well. We begin with Dario Cueto talking to Aerostar, and this is Dario Cueto trying to sow some seeds of doubt in Aerostar that Drago is a guy on the up and up, because, you know, they have been teammates on prior episodes, and though they are friends, this has gotten a little heated between them, and Dario Cueto wants to see a little blood, wants to see a little intensity, and so he's telling Aerostar, yes, you're from the stars, but Drago, he gets his power from the center of the earth, from hell, you know what I mean? And you should be a little bit worried about that. That's kind of a fun little Dario Cueto moment here. We have... The most normal-looking Matt Stryker Vampiro tandem yet that we have seen on TV kicking off the show. And you know what? Let's talk real quickly about Matt Stryker and Vampiro. I'm going through this episode section by section, but I've already watched this first episode all the way through about a couple of weeks ago. And you know what? Matt Stryker and Vampiro, I'm going to give them the B on commentary this week, which I haven't done the letter grades in forever, but I have to on this episode because this was something above average. And that actually is notable because, as you'll recall, early on in this series, not super thrilled with their commentary. And it was even worse before I started the show. They have slowly arced towards progress, and that's really all you can ask out of someone. Get a little bit better at your job every week. This episode kicks off with the Lucha Underground Special, which is a barn-burning opening match. And if you haven't seen this match, you really ought to. It's been a couple of weeks now, maybe a little stale. But I know a lot of people who watch this show and play catch-up three or four weeks at a time. And no one has complained that I am doing this sort of two-shot episode format. And if someone was, of course, I'd change it up. But I I literally have received no complaints about this. So I want to keep us current, but I think that maybe that is 
tacit approval that this is handy when you're trying to play catch up or if you're going to watch this week's episode you can listen to this episode which is going to drop on that Wednesday and know what's happened on Lucha Underground over the last two weeks all right enough spouting about the format and the genius of doing this format like this it's also convenient for me because I'm busy on the side here this is a very very fun match and let's talk about one thing that Vampiro does that doesn't quite work for me, and it is he has beef with Conan and he has beef with Mundo. And there's a couple of things that don't work with this. First, he has beef with both Mundo and Conan, who are intertwining members of this Prince Puma storyline. So you never really get a sense of where Vampiro would fall if it was a choice between Johnny Mundo and Conan, which is obviously where this storyline is going. I, I don't see how even Vampiro doesn't see this coming. At some point, Puma is going to have to choose his friend, his actual friend, which is Johnny Mundo, and we'll talk about some of the nice storytelling that gets done in this match to flesh out the fact that Mundo and Puma are, in fact, boys on the same page. And, you know, at least at this point, if Mundo was going to want a title shot from Prince Puma, he'd ask, and Prince Puma, being a stand-up guy and appreciating Johnny Mundo, more than likely would just grant him the title shot right out the gate. So there's that tension. But then there's another tension of the fact that Vampiro, when he's pressed by Matt Stryker about why Conan sucks, Vampiro never has anything concrete to say about this. And it's the same thing with Johnny Mundo. He keeps saying, oh, Mundo's out for himself, but we really have nothing in the storyline that suggests that Mundo is anything other than the babyface babyface he's the one with the face who is the babyface and you know puma's underneath the mask it wasn't that good of a joke i'll give it the bret hart four out of ten let's get into this match i'm gonna do some breakdown but i think this gets a little it gets claustrophobic a lot of shit happened in this match but we kicked it off with king cuerno and hernandez i didn't love the interaction between them because i think hernandez made King Cuerno looked a little too much like a boy. There was like the rockabye spot where he catches King Cuerno and sort of rocks him to sleep and he gets him in the corner and just quiets him down like a little child before he slaps him. And, and I just thought that it was a little too dismissive of King Cuerno. But you're going to forget about that by the time we get to the finish of this match. Cuerno eventually tags out after Hernandez gets the better of him. That brings in Tejano to the ring. Next, we get Johnny Mundo squaring off with Tejano. There is a fun little jab that Stryker, I think, no, that Vampiro makes about the audience, saying that they're the smartest audience in wrestling because they can actually count to 10. Because there are a lot of times in WWE where 10 counts aren't really 10 counts or people get way ahead. Or I remember with the Cesaro swing, people couldn't keep track of that at all. Vampiro... Um, oh no, I've already addressed that. Next, we're going to get Puma versus Tejano, and that was a fun little exchange. I- I'm looking forward to when these two guys finally get a chance to really square off in the ring. This leads to an isolation of Puma by the heel team, and they take advantage of it. There's a double spot with Mundo and Hernandez. This is really great. So they get Cage and King Cuerno in the corner. Hernandez sets up for the springboard. Springboards Mundo over his head, leading into a drop kick, which just looked fantastic. That that was a really really nice spot. We get more Tejano and Mundo in the ring. At one point, Cage 
tags in, and Mad Striker makes a man called Sting reference when the man called Cage gets into the ring, which I thought was very funny. Good little Easter egg for people who are longtime wrestling fans. Next, we get, oh, this is a cool spot. Puma with the tandem DDT neckbreaker on the heel team. So he feeds Tejano into King Cuerno, and that results in a neckbreaker DDT. So, like, one of the heels has the other one in a headlock, and then Prince Puma comes by and pulls a neckbreaker, so it forces the one guy who's standing and not bending over to pull the other guy down into a DDT. That was a probably more technical breakdown than you needed to envision this, but if you haven't seen the spot, I wanted to kind of paint a picture for you because some might feel that I don't do a good enough job breaking it down blow by blow. I'm trying. We have a flying Hernandez spot. Hernandez looks pretty sharp in this match, and he definitely looks like he can hang with these cats in the ring, which was my question with Hernandez when he came into Lucha Underground. How much does this guy have left? And Hernandez is willing to take some pretty crazy risks. The suicide dive, he gets his head angled a little bit more towards the ground than you would want. You kind of want to end more parallel to the ground that if anything went wrong, you would land in a safe way. But hey, you know what? He was caught safely. He was protected by the heels. And that's what you need when you do high spots. None of this Miz bullshit. So we have Puma and Mundo going into a synergy spot. So we have the first synergy spot outside where they double super kick King Cuerno. This is great. And the whole Mundo and Puma thing, it's fun. It's fun to see these guys almost like an action movie, like they're the buddy cops. And they have done that a little bit with the backstage vignettes and the stylized arm thing and all of that shit. And they do another tandem spot to the outside on the heel team where they both jump over the ropes and land on them, and it's good stuff. Next, we have Puma and Cage, and the heels kind of take over and get control of Puma, and then there's a reversal of that situation. This is the point of the match where everything gets really crazy. This is a very, very fun finishing sequence. At one point, it looks like the babyface team is going to get the win when Puma goes for a springboard 450 to get the near fall on Cage. The babyface team is keeping the heels at bay, but Cage is able to get his shoulder up. Then we have Teano. He comes in. He gets a code breaker on Hernandez, taking Hernandez off of his feet. I suspect we will see a Tejano and Hernandez matchup coming at some point here in the future. And then we have Mundo. He gets a spear, and then Tejano's on the outside, and he hits Puma with the bull rope, which allows King Cuerno to avenge his loss from last week that I was not thrilled about with the thrill of the hunt. This match had a ton of stuff going on in it, as I have talked about it for nearly 10 minutes straight now. And it was great because you had storytelling happening in the match. You had setups for other matches. This trios format really allows you to do so much in a very condensed area. And visually, it makes the matches fun and worth watching. I thought that this was just a great match. And if you haven't got a chance to see it, you should. Thumbs up. 
Following the match, our impresario, Dario Cueto, who is on this show quite a lot, comes out from his office. I'm not complaining about him being on the show quite a lot, by the way. He comes out from his office, and he says that coming up next, we're going to have a three-way match featuring one representative from each of the qualifying teams for the finals for the trio titles next week. So it's going to be a triple threat. And the heel team that we just saw wrestle, led by King Cuerno, they'd choose Cage. And out from the back comes Willie Mack, the Mack. And he is out to face whoever is chosen from Ivelisse, Angelico, and Son of Havoc. And you can sort of piece together how this story went. Like, they real quickly had a meeting backstage. Angelico's like a chicken shit, so why would he want to go out and fight? And Ivelisse hates Son of Havoc and would love any opportunity to see Son of Havoc get hurt. So, out comes Son of Havoc. We don't see any of this, but it's not hard, given these characters, to imagine just how this meeting went. Which is, by the way, a real tip of the hat to the writing. They do a good job with that team. Now, this match, because it is just a teaser for next week, I didn't get super into this. It was all right. There was a nice Tower of Doom spot where one guy was going from going for a superplex and the other guy came in for a sit-out powerbomb. Eventually, Son of Havoc goes on a little bit of a rally late in the match, and he looks good, and Son of Havoc's offense lends itself nicely to a high-octane comeback rally sort of thing because he does all the high-flying moves, and they all look very, very clean. This gets stopped when he goes for a suicide dive to the outside, and that gets caught by Cage for a vertical suplex to the outside, and that looks just great. Mac comes in and breaks up Cage when he's going for a Weapon X on Son of Havoc, and Stryker actually addresses Max weight being an issue for him in this type of match. Perhaps he's overexposed, perhaps this match requires too much in terms of tempo, and I thought that was a nice way of explaining why Mac wasn't that big of a factor in this match. Okay, that works, that works. Eventually, Son of Havoc is going for a shooting star press, He misses this shooting star press, and that gives Cage the opportunity to hit Weapon X. He wins the match, and as Matt Stryker says, he sets the tone for next week in the finals. This is a quick match. It's a fine match, but it certainly wasn't your opening match, and it was just the sandwich match between the opening match, which was exciting and rateable, even if you want to do stars, and this closing match, which I feel your mileage will vary on. It just depends on how you feel about the series. I, As I said on the last episode, this series failed to capture the sports essence of what's happening. And I'm saying this as the San Antonio Spurs are just wrapping up their Game 5 against the Clippers, and they're tied 2-2. Believe you me. The team going into Game 4 was trying to win Game 4 as hard as anything because you win Game 4, you win the series. Following the match, we see, you guessed it, Dario Cueto, and this time he's talking to Drago, and he tells Drago that Aerostar will stop at nothing, blah, blah, blah. It's the exact same shit that he told Aerostar, so there's not a whole lot more to say about that. Now... Let's get to my favorite part of this episode, which is the interaction between Pentagon and Santos. We cut to Pentagon in the ring with Santos. He tells Santos, get on the mic and tell everyone that this is a sacrifice to my master. We've heard this shtick before, right? 
wrong. This time, he grabs Santos, and he throws her to the ground like he's going to do the arm break on her. And she struggles, and she's really good in the struggle. It's very convincing. She sells the terror quite well. Vamp teases that he's going to get up from the commentary table. He's completely disgusted. The crowd went from... Slightly being enthusiastic right at the beginning of this segment to being squarely against Pentagon. They got the message. Sexy Star comes down for the save. And the best part of this whole scene, Matt fucking Stryker. Holy shit, I can't believe that just came out of my mouth. But seriously, Stryker's call here is excellent. It's just excellent. It's the call that Byron Saxton was searching for after Michael Cole got obliterated and he couldn't find it. Matt Stryker's tone is like he's trying to recapture order after seeing something horrible. And the way you would do that in real life is not to go, oh my, I can't believe what just happened to Sexy Star. Your job is to move the audience past it. So Matt Stryker is trying to relay to you what's going to happen later on this episode, but clearly comes off as flummoxed, confused, distraught by the events, but he never crosses that line past unbelievability. I thought he struck just the right notes here, and it was an excellent segment all the way around. The crowd got the message, so it worked without the commentary, but with that little extra commentary cherry on top, this segment to me was one of the strongest in-ring storytelling segments that we've seen on Lucha Underground in a while. Pentagon's a fucking heel. Everyone gets it now. We come back from break and we see who else? Dario Cueto. And he is in the ring with a smirk on his face as he explains that Santos will not be here to announce the competitors in this next matchup because she's a little shaken up. Dario Cueto doing a good job just establishing that Dario Cueto character with every opportunity. I love it. We introduce Drago and Aerostar. This is not a series that I loved. But if you want to hear me get into that more in depth, you can listen to the last episode. I'm not going to rehash all of that. Let's just get into the match. So Drago's strategy in this match, which is excellent, and I think he does a very good job staying psychologically focused on this throughout the match, is working Aerostar's neck. And he comes right out and gets Aerostar with a brain buster and segues that into almost a cross-face type of submission hold. Setting the table, working Aerostar's neck. Aerostar does a springboard senton. Drago hits like a sit-out dominator move. This looked really sweet. Aerostar eventually gets Drago on the outside and hits him with his signature trust fall move. Drago gets Aerostar back into the ring and hits him with another DDT or hits him with the first DDT in this match. More neck work, another neck-centric move. Aerostar does this really crazy-looking and awesome corner move that... Words would fail to describe. It's just worth seeing. Drago eventually gets Aerostar outside and moves to the table. This is establishing that second gear of the match. Aerostar reverses fortunes on Drago, though, and Drago ends up on the table. Aerostar goes back into the ring, runs off the ropes, and goes for a splash into the table and almost overshoots the fucking table, which would have been disastrous, not just from an optics move, but from the way Aerostar was coming in, it was almost like the way Hernandez was coming in, coming in with the head first, and if he hadn't hit that table, that wouldn't have been pretty looking at all. So... After that, we get another springboard senton from Aerostar inside onto Drago. And Aerostar goes for a bunch of quick cradle-type 
pinfalls. Aerostar's trying to get the closeout in this match. Eventually, though, Drago is able to do this very cool overhead DDT signature move as Matt Stryker identifies it, and that weakens up Aerostar's neck substantially, allowing Drago to go for the Tail of the Dragon, which looked really, really good thanks to good camera coverage here. Really good camera coverage. Looks sharp. It's just neat to see all the different steps in the Tail of the Dragon, and it's a very, very believable pinning combination. I like it a lot. At the end of the match, we have a sign of mutual respect, Now, yes, I wanted a heel turn, but I wanted that in the last match so that this match would have fire. Having a heel turn this week would make no sense. Why, Chris? It would make no sense because I want this fucking feud to be over, and if someone turns heel in this match, then this feud goes onwards. So, mercifully, we get the sign of mutual respect. Mercifully, from my angle, again, if you like this, I'm not blaming you. I'm not begrudging you. It's wrestling, man. People have different tastes for things. It's just this feud wasn't even really a feud. And I never felt like we hit second gear. I was hoping for a story that took us from point A to point B. But at the end of this best of five series, with these two guys, between Aerostar and Drago, we have had no progression. So that, to me, is a problem with this. But it segues into Drago getting a Lucha Underground title shot from Dario Cueto with one little caveat, one simple little caveat. It's win or go home. And that brings us to the end of our April 15th episode of Lucha Underground. Let's get into the April 22nd episode of Lucha Underground. We begin with Black Lotus, and she is doing another training montage, which is great. And we see more of El Dragon Azteca. He says, come with me again, which I enjoy a lot, as I alluded to last episode. There's also a very funny sequence where Black Lotus crushes someone's nuts twice. Yeah. And then El Dragon Azteca is trying to teach her not to use her rage. And she spars with El Dragon Azteca, but El Dragon Azteca turns into Matanza for her mentally. And she says, I hate you to El Dragon Azteca. And this allows El Dragon Azteca to gain the advantage on Black Lotus. He's sort of her Obi-Wan Kenobi. I like all of this. I, th- I think these montages are good. And then we cut to Vampiro kicking off the start of this show. Yeah, I didn't see that coming either. Vampiro says it's a historic night. And I knew we were going to get a good intro after this. And he says, reason number one, the fans all right, maybe you just came out of your mouth and you needed to vamp a little bit, and that's a good way to mentally vamp. Reason number two, we got Matt Stryker. Oh, all right, I historic Matt Stryker. I'll just leave it there. Reason number three, the fans. And reason number four is we have a historic night. Yeah. So, speaking of that reaction, let's get into Sexy Star versus Pentagon Jr., Now, in my mind, with the way you've been booking Pentagon Jr., there is only one right outcome for this match. Pentagon Jr. eviscerates Sexy Star. That, of course, does not happen. And the way they have written this story, they've written themselves into a corner. 
Either way, they do this match. You spend a lot of time building this sexy star character, and if Pentagon Jr. does what I describe, then it demolishes the entire narrative that sexy star can hang with the men in the Federation, that she's every bit as tough as a man. Now, again, flipping over to Pentagon Jr., Pentagon Jr. destroys men with ease. He is being positioned to be a top-of-the-card act, and a Pentagon Jr. versus Prince Puma match should have some intrigue for anyone who's been following this product for any length of time. That's where Pentagon Jr. is in terms of importance. Maybe not quite there. He hasn't quite had that match to break into the top of the card. But you get what I'm saying here. A loss to Pentagon Jr., particularly to Sexy Star, who mostly trades in banana peel-type finishes or fluky finishes, and this one's really not that much different from a typical Sexy Star win. She never beats anyone decisively, and she always just narrowly pulls it out, and yeah, that's scrappy, and yeah, that's underdog, but whoever eats a loss from Sexy Star, especially when it's not quite a banana peel finish, but not quite a decisive ass-whooping, and also... Let's go into the psychology of this match. Pentagon Jr. is toying with Sexy Star for most of this match. So it is Pentagon's error in estimation of Sexy Star that allows Sexy Star to have the opportunity to take advantage of an opening that Pentagon Jr. eventually leaves her when he's trying to close out the match. So you see what I'm saying here. It's not that Sexy Star is a great fighter. It's that Pentagon Jr. fucked up. He got cocky. And you know what's really crazy? I thought last week, in everything involving Melissa would have clearly moved the crowd over to Sexy Star's side. Nope. There's still the vision. And maybe it is, I guess you could call them smarky fans, or people who just view this is a zero-sum game in terms of storylines and in terms of what you can do with these characters. So it's sort of the game within the game. Pentagon Jr. eats a loss here. He's never going to be able to break into the top of the card. Again, this is from where we're standing this week. And if Sexy Star eats a loss here, her character's basically dead in the water. So it's kind of a must-win situation for either character, although Pentagon is much more durable coming out of this. And I certainly have my fingers crossed that he is because he's going to lose. Sexy gets a little bit of offense after getting beat down for a while. She does like a running stomp in the corner that looks good. She does a DDT, she does this head scissors, she eventually does a spot through the middle ropes to the outside. Pentagon Jr. retakes control, and Pentagon's offense, of course, looks crisp and stiff, and it's good shit, man. It's really good shit. He does these two powerbomb backstabbers to Sexy Star. This is not enough to put Sexy Star away. This is at the point where Pentagon's getting serious about finishing off Sexy Star. But the next time Pentagon goes for another powerhouse move, Sexy Star is able to do sort of a spin around and get the lung blower for the victory. Okay, she pins Pentagon Jr. That's fine and dandy and Pentagon Jr. is not going to be done with her, I assume. I would hope. Pentagon Jr. will avenge this loss. 
or suffer consequences. But I don't even really want to see Pentagon Jr. suffer consequences from his master. So this was not a fun match for me. And it was a boring match beyond all of that. Sexy Star, I don't connect with her when she's getting roughed up because I don't feel like her selling's very emotive. It, it actually makes her look weak. I think her backstory's pathetic. Vampiro was trying to remember it, and he kind of worded it funny, where he was like, there was a time where she almost thought about attempting suicide. Holy shit, wow. I know what he was trying to say, but that's sort of where I feel like I'm at with this Sexy Star character. She puts on the mask because it makes her feel empowered. Okay, but what else? What else do you have for me? We cut to the back, and we have a continuation of the slow burn between Johnny Mundo and Alberto El Patron. And this is great. Alberto is there needling Johnny for not being able to get it done in the trios tournament last week. And telling Johnny that he's the type of guy who just can't quite get it done when it's all on the line and when it really matters. And, truth be told, yeah, Johnny Mundo can get wins, including a win over the champion. But he did not get a win over the champion when it mattered in Aztec Warfare. And in those clutch situations, Mundo's character has been a choke artist. We then have Alberto El Patron bring up the brass ring and telling Johnny Mundo every time you go for the brass ring, it just seems to be pulled away from you. And this is a reference back to WWE, and I'm guessing this audience is smart enough to know this, the people listening to this podcast, but I enjoyed all of this. And I also enjoyed Johnny Mundo referencing the slap that Alberto Del Rio, Alberto El Patron, allegedly did to a member of WWE's staff or a former member of WWE staff after that guy said something racist. So we're going to see a match between these two down the line, maybe for Alberto's title. I, I think that's the obvious one, right? You have Muno try to go after Alberto's title and see where it goes from there. Our trio's titles main event begins with Cage squaring off in the ring against Killshot and Angelico. And the story early on in this match is that the heel team wants to isolate the smaller guys, the scrawnier guys, and lay a whooping on them. And early on, Team Cuerno is firing on all cylinders. They're tagging in and out, quick heel tags, and they're doing tandem moves. Tejano does a back body drop with Cuerno, and he couples that with a kick. That is very effective the first time on Killshot. The second time, when they go to do it on Angelico, King Cuerno sells the kick like it went awry, and he's kind of limping around the ring, leaving Tejano in the ring, and this allows momentum to shift. We get into the next phase of this match, which is a square-off between Willie Mack and Son of Havoc. And boy, is this crowd excited about the prospect of seeing Son of Havoc and Willie Mack really square it off for a couple of minutes. But we're not getting it. Not this episode, at least. The Mack goes flying to the outside. Son of Havoc goes to the outside. And you know what? 
when the Mac and Son of Havoc finally get to have a singles match, it's going to be really sweet. I'm looking forward to it in this promotion. I'm sure I could see it somewhere else, but these two guys really have connected with this fan base, and it would be something where the split crowd would really add to the quality of the match. We get a square off between Big Rick and the man called Cage. And it's not really that exciting. Cage gets the upper hand and goes for a moonsault to the outside. And once again, we're reminded that this Cage guy, for his size, is an unbelievable high flyer. Angelico comes off of the apron with a running knee to Tejano. And this sends Tejano staggering back and bumping into our mystery man in the front row, who, as you might guess, takes umbrage with the fact that this Tejano guy would bump into him. And Tejano is a little bit dismissive of this, and, you know, not for nothing, I don't blame Tejano for being a little bit dismissive of this, but that's a critical mistake, and Tejano finds himself getting run into a steel post, and then getting thrown into a stack of wooden chairs, and being softened up by our as-of-yet unnamed mystery man who then feels compelled to rip open his shirt. A staggered Tejano is going to find himself back in the ring and on the receiving end of a double stomp from Killshot. And I liked this elimination because later on in this match, Killshot is going to lose to Angelico from the fall of the Angels. And this elimination, which Killshot gets entirely on his own, makes Killshot look legitimate and look like a real competitor. So this was smart booking here. Down to two teams, Angelico finds himself in the ring and facing a rotating cast and crew from Big Rick's team who is isolating against Angelico. And this goes on for a good while. I like this because this gets highlighted by commentary. So the isolation on Angelico is an important motif that carries through all three acts of this match. Angelico makes a rally and is able to clear out Willie Mack and Big Rick from the ring, leaving Angelico and Killshot to square off for a while here. Killshot gets some offense in, and you know, with Killshot, it's like, some moves look really clean with him, and some moves, eh, not so slick. Son of Havoc is going to square off with Killshot, and our next key spot is going to occur when Son of Havoc resists a top rope Hurricane Rana attempt from Killshot, and he is holding on to the top turnbuckle. This is also going to lead to one of my favorite calls from Matt Stryker in this entire series. Our friend Son of Havoc is still hanging out on the top turnbuckle, clutching onto the top turnbuckle, and Ivalice starts walking towards him. Now, you might remember, Son of Havoc and Ivalice used to date, but they don't really get along so much anymore. And she wasn't particularly thrilled in being a part of this team, and in the last match, she walked out on them. So, when Vampiro asks... What is she doing as she approaches a mildly incapacitated Son of Havoc? It's a completely legitimate question, which Matt Stryker dismisses outright by saying, It doesn't matter! And then proceeding to go in the direction that he wants to go, putting her over as this absolute competitor. And this is actually one of my big problems with this match. 
and you see it at the end of the episode, but I'm just going to get to it right now. Matt Stryker at some point turns the corner on this team from this is a dysfunctional group of people, one of whom we really like to, you know what, we really like Ivelisse and that Angelico and that Son of Havoc, but Angelico's a dickhead who is trying to steal Son of Havoc's girlfriend when she was his girlfriend, and Ivelisse is kind of, you know, a jerk to Son of Havoc and was always treating him bad. So these people aren't really good people. The only one who's actually all right is Son of Havoc. It turns out we like that guy. I have no interest in seeing Son of Havoc get back together with Ivelisse and Angelico and Son of Havoc go on fishing trips together and we see montages of them hugging, doing Johnny Mundo type high fives. No, At the end of the day... I like Creeper Angelico, and I like kind of a bitch, Ivelisse. Ivelisse does not betray Son of Havoc. She instead dives off of the top rope onto Willie Mac and Big Rick, who catch her, and then Son of Havoc makes the save on his ex-girlfriend, knocking Willie Mac and Big Rick down, leaving Angelico and Killshot in the ring, and Angelico hits the fall of the angels on Killshot for the pin, the victory, and for the belts, right? Wrong. Dario Cueto comes out of his office and announces that he has one more team in this trios tournament, And it's his lovable band of losers, the crew, who are boring and remind me of the Nasty Boys and Public Enemy when they used to have those matches in WCW that didn't really do a whole lot for me then. And the crew's style of matches don't really do a whole hell of a lot for me now. And I get that they're supposed to be heels, and I get that they're not supposed to have an offense that I find interesting. But I'm still supposed to enjoy these matches on some level. And every time the crew comes out, I can't wait for these matches to be over. And I really wish that I didn't have to review them. So the first five minutes or so of this match is crew beatdown type shit. And Angelico finds himself left on that high perch. Ivelisse is now favoring her leg. And she's not really a big factor in this match for most of this match and the crew is taking advantage of that and taking advantage of her. This is drawing massive sympathy from the crowd. And one of the things that really went well in this match was the match booking in terms of gaining crowd sympathy and making sure that by the end of this, you were completely behind Angelico, Ivelisse, and Son of Havoc. This was not a split crowd, as is sometimes want to do, even in the Lucha Underground Temple, where people are generally trusting of the stories they're being told. No, they were in with this hook, line, and sinker. I think even the smarky smarks maybe don't have a whole hell of a lot of love for the crew. And, you know, you like your Son of Havoc, so you're not going to be against that guy and you know given your options of son of havoc versus the crew i'd rather watch son of havoc matches any day of the week versus any one of these guys or even the collected works of mr cisco bale and cortez castro we have three key spots to close out this encounter with the crew this title defense not really a title defense i guess it's just a third part of the tournament or I don't know it's fucking getting late I'm having to watch a fucking crew match again first Mr. Cisco 
fucks up a suplex to Son of Havoc. And upon rewatch, what it looks like happens is Cisco goes for a suplex from the stands, which would go back to the ringside area. And this suplex is right where the stairs to the ring are. Cisco realizes this, and so he pulls in the suplex using the rail. The whole thing looks sloppy as fuck. Matt Stryker breaks out of character because of this, because he's legitimately concerned about Son of Havoc. Son of Havoc is a pro, and he gets up to go and do a moonsault from the same stands area. But when he goes to do the moonsault, this is really key, and this is what makes me kind of believe that it had to do with the stairs being right there. He turns himself to an angle so he can clear himself of the turnbuckle pull and everything. This is a potentially very, very dangerous spot, and Mr. Cisco was just careless in doing so. We then have Ivelisse in the ring, and it looks like she's going to be cornered by Bale and Cortez Castro, and then Angelico, who was left for naught up on the high platform that Johnny Mundo has dived from heroically, runs and does a huge crossbody off of that same top spot. This is going to be a signature spot in Lucha Underground. And I like that they don't overuse it. That's what made this still feel fresh. And I was like, oh man, I'm glad I got to see that one again. And then we get Ivelisse. And she finally gets a hold of the kendo stick. And because this part of the match, or this match, is no disqualification, Ivelisse is going to be able to use the kendo stick and extract some revenge on these guys. By their own rules... And they didn't slow down or take it easy on her at all. And I guess that's something I want to stop on for a moment. Because I think that Ivelisse's character does so much more for the feminist narrative that Matt Stryker tries to spin every week on commentary when Sexy Star comes out. Those matches aren't booked in a way that really make her look tough. Ivelisse, she always looks tough. She's diving into Willie Mack, and she's diving into Big Rick, and she's kicking Angelico, and she's saying, don't take it easy on me, don't slow down your game on me, and you can hit me. And when someone finally comes in there and hits her just like a man, like the crew does, you know what she does? She stands her ground. She hangs in there. That's cool. Ivelisse tells Son of Havoc and Angelico, it's time to fly. And Son of Havoc takes one turnbuckle, Angelico takes the other, and they execute a tandem shooting star press and double stomp from either side, getting a double pinfall at the same time. This is not quite perfectly timed from the referee, but you know what? Who fucking cares? Our winners and your new trios champions or your trios champions for the first time or the first ever trios champions, however you'd like to word it, are Ivelisse, Angelico, and Son of Havoc. And this is good, but I feel like Matt Stryker tries to make this too much. And I don't really think that writing is going to keep these guys together forever. I could be wrong. This could be some weird love triangle thing, an alternative love affair deal that is going on. And we'll, we, this is a very, very progressive show. We, we could go there. But I think this team works better a little bit more conventionally where 
they just keep finding ways to win. They don't necessarily like each other, but they realize that together they actually are champions and separate. None of them will ever be Lucha Underground champions. That's going to do it for this episode of Lucha of the Hidden Temple. My name is Dr. No. If you can follow me on Twitter at C-H-R-I-S-N-O-V-E-M-B-R-I-N-O. Chris Novembrino. That's also my name I want to thank you all so much for listening. And until the next one, cheers. Great interviews, analysis, music, and, and me, Matt Kuhn, on total engagement. Go to any podcast platform to listen today.